Purple elephant shower thought of the day is actually a Chinese proverb. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. This is Purple Elephant Radio, where we hear about storytelling, originality, and creativity from the creators who are actually making something matter. I'm your host, Sean Green. I always preface my solo episodes with something like, I don't know everything, or take this with a grain of salt. And this time I mean it more than usual. I'm going to be talking about investing, personal finance, the the nitty gritty, the psychology surrounding money, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And I'm going to be naming specific families of funds, because I think one of the, the biggest holdups for people who haven't invested, who are very young as I am, is just not knowing the specifics. So I want to give you the specifics of investing, but with that, I feel like there's the potential for a conflict of interest. So even though I'm going to be naming funds, I don't want you to make any irrational decisions from this episode. I I don't want to create the impression that I'm gaining anything by, by sharing these. There's going to be no referral links, no, oh, let's help each other out and each get a stock. None of that. Because my only intention in this episode is to share with you my most recent obsession, wealth creation. See, I'm bringing in the the creator stuff, even when I talk about money. I'm not going to be sharing any wild predictions about the financial market crashing in X amount of days or how there's this one cryptocurrency that no one's talking about. But I will be giving you the tools and strategies that I've learned to think about wealth creation so that you can make your own decisions about money in a calm, emotional state. I'm not going to be sharing any mind-blowing secrets about money or get-rich-quick schemes. So if you're listening to this episode, if you're going to commit to listen to the full full length of this episode, do it because you want to learn how to earn wealth over a long period of time. Because you want to grow a tree. This is not clickbait. I'm not making any special promises. If you're going to stay with me, it's because you want to learn and you're in it for the long haul. This episode, like most of my episodes, are designed with the creative in mind, with the artist, the freelancer, the entrepreneur, you know, the people I've been interviewing for season three. So I will touch on 401ks a little bit and we'll get into what the retirement accounts are, but I'm going to focus more on if you were a freelancer, if you were an entrepreneur how would you go about your personal finances if you don't have that option for the the company's investment plan? How are you going to do it on your own? Because I'm assuming the person listening to this wants to be a self-starter, at least in, in some aspect of creating something that matters. Any facts or stats I share will be linked in the show notes, and I'm really going to take that seriously this time around. Most of my information will be coming from the books The Psychology of Money by Morgan Hossel and The Path by Peter Malak and Tony Robbins, as well as some information I've learned from Dr. Melissa Griswold, the author of Smart Bitch Dumb Dog and my current personal finance professor, and also Dave Ramsey. He is an incredible, incredible personal finance guru 
if you want to use Guru. Um, and he has a podcast called The Dave Ramsey Show, which I hope you will listen to if if this episode piques your interest in any way. Now with all that out of the way, let's begin. Let's start learning. Hey guys, I've really fallen in love with the medium of podcasting. And I finally feel comfortable to where I want to ask for your support. So in the description and in all of the descriptions following this episode, I'm going to start putting a link for a spot for you to donate a small monthly amount of either a buck, five bucks, or ten bucks a month. Now this money is going to help the podcast grow. It's going to show me that this is worth my time. And because this is for creators by a creator, I would hope that you can see that I'm doing this so I can sustain the act of creating. So if you really like this podcast, if you want to support the show, go down in the description, click the link to chip in a small amount to support the show. Thanks. First, I'm going to give you my thought process around investing and personal finance. The world of finances is incredibly complicated. If you want it to be. If, on the other hand, you want to be an artist or a filmmaker or a writer and focus on your craft, your creative craft, instead of thinking about debt and taxes and investing, then it doesn't have to be that complicated. I think the basis of this episode could be summed up in one sentence. Learn enough while you're young to establish good principles, habits, and strategies, and then focus on what you're really passionate about and let your money work for you. My goal is to make investing less scary and make saving money more enticing. And I think the first myth, if we want to call it that, the first holdup when it comes to investing is thinking you have to have a certain amount of money to start. There's this great saying, and I think it might have come from Jim Rohn, but it's something along the lines of, if you can't take a dime out of a dollar, then why would you take 5000 out of your 50k salary. It's a fallacy to think once you hit a certain dollar amount, then you can start to invest or start a rainy day fund or donate to charity. Establish the patterns when you're making minimum wage and working part time and living at home before you have tons of expenses and debt. I've read more than just the the two personal finance books I'm going to be mentioning in this episode. And a lot of them are written for the people with a healthy, stable salary in mind. And I think it creates the impression that you can't start investing. You can't start thinking about creating wealth long-term until you have that. So the college student sits on the sideline. And I really want to kind of combat that and say, even if you're only making 200 bucks a week at some fast food restaurant, you can start investing now. You know, as long as you have some stability, as long as, let's say, you're still living at home, you can still invest when you're young. You don't have to wait till you're living on your own, till you have that $50,000 a year job. Because I really do think the longer you can let your money compound and the earlier you get in the game, the game of the stock market, the better. And I also want to preface that it's not like I've am instantly wealthy from investing, but I do think I'm on the right path. I do think based on the strategies I've been learning that I am in a good place and I there's so much room for improvement for me, but 
part of making this episode is to kind of solidify my thoughts about money, solidify my, my strategies, my philosophies, so that it will set me for a, a better future, to be smarter, to save more. That's part of making this episode is that I don't know everything, but I'm curious and I want to learn more. And I want to share what I'm learning at the moment because it forces me to learn even more than I already do. In preparation for this episode, I asked someone I knew, you know, who I knew didn't invest, why? Why haven't they? And one of the answers that I heard was, I don't invest because I'm afraid, you know, what if I buy a stock and the company goes bankrupt the next day and I lose all my money? Then if that were the case, and it's possible that will happen, if that's the case, then okay, yeah. It is smarter to keep your money in savings. But what I think I got from that answer is it it presents a huge misconception about investing that I had myself before I started, before I started learning about this. And that, that misconception is that you only invest in individual stocks and you only invest in companies you've heard of. You know, Apple, Tesla, we all know about how Tesla's stock is doing. We all know about Walmart. We all know these companies that, you know, we drive down the street and we see their stores every day. Like, oh yeah, I can invest in that. You can. But like that old saying, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Even something as stable as Walmart, investing in individual stocks is rarely an intelligent buy. And that's especially true for someone who doesn't want to devote their life to studying the market, who doesn't want to try to time things. You know, if you want to focus on your craft of art, creativity, whatever that is, then diversify and then get out and let your money work for you. So what that, what that begs the question is, well, what would I invest in? If not for individual stocks, what is there? Before I get to that answer, I kind of have to explain how you would go about investing. And the nice thing about technology is that there are so many ways to do it and the cost of entry is $0. I mean, you may be like a couple dollars, but it's so low because technology has kind of democratized the ability for anyone to invest. And so I'll just say where I started. I started where anyone with a friend in the business school would start with getting a referral link to open a Robinhood account. Now, I'm sure, I hope you've all heard of Robinhood. If not, I'll, you know, link up what is a Robinhood thing. But it's basically a mobile-only brokerage. A brokerage is a place where you open an account, put money in that account, and you can invest from there. So uh, other names you might have heard of, um, Schwab, Vanguard, Fidelity, American. These are all kind of families, brokerages, some of which have their own funds. And bear with me because I'm really going to try to simplify this, but some of which have their own funds. You may have heard of a Vanguard fund that you can buy. But these these bigger pictures are the places where you invest your money. Think of it like if you have a uh, a savings account of Bank of America, you can have an investment account at Vanguard. So it's kind of just the name of the place where you put your money. Robinhood is the place I started because it's so simple and user-friendly. That That's why. I'm not 
a proponent of it. I have a different, I have a account somewhere else now, but that's where I started because it's so user-friendly. Now, the danger of that, the danger of something that's so user-friendly is that it can get misused by people who don't know much about investing because they make it so user-friendly that they don't really give detailed financial analyses, analyses. And so someone like a college student like me could go into these complicated things like options tradings and buying futures, which I'm not going to get into because I don't get it <laughs> at all. They can try to short stocks and that is risky, <laughs> period. Um, it makes it easy to day trade, which we'll get into in a little bit, but day trading is never a good idea for someone who wants to invest for the long term. The idea of trying to, in the same day, buy low and sell high and make that little bit of money, that is not a good idea if you're not going to be a financial or stock market analyst. You know, if you want to be a creative, ignore all that stuff. So I've explained the kind of accounts where you go. You can get the Robinhood app or any of those other companies that I named probably have apps. I know Schwab has an app. I think Vanguard has an app. Get the app, you know, create the account, put in your information. It's like opening a bank account. And from there, let's say you put in a hundred bucks. Now that you have a hundred dollars in that account, you can buy stuff from the stock market. Now, each of these brokerages offer different uh, investments. Most of them, I think probably all of them, and I'll correct myself if I need to in the show notes, but all of them will have your basic Apple stock, Tesla stock. You know, I know Robinhood has the, the cryptocurrencies, which we'll get into in, in, a little, in a little bit as well. But they have all kind of the classic stocks. And they also have these things called mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, ETFs. And that is what you want to, th this is the part where you take notes. Mutual funds, ETFs, exchange-traded funds, and index funds. That is how you diversify without having to do an insane amount of research. That is how you invest for the long term, by looking at those. I cannot emphasize that enough. Mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, and index funds. And an index fund is a type of mutual fund. So you've opened your account in Robinhood. You've put in 100 bucks. Let's say for the sake of example that the cost of one to buy one stock of a mutual fund costs 100 bucks. So you have just enough. So what does it mean to have bought a stock of a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund. Mutual funds and exchange-traded funds are similar because they're both diversified. That means they're both a, a collection of many, many stocks. The benefit of diversification is that, you know, one company could go bankrupt and it wouldn't be the end of the world to the money, your hard-earned money that you've put in. Multiple companies in that, that exchange-traded fund could lose money. But as long as those, those top companies continue to earn and earn more, then you will be okay and you will continue to earn more money and your, your money will compound. I'm editing the show right now and I realized I didn't mention that 
Mutual funds and exchange traded funds can also include bonds. And the way to differentiate a stock versus a bond in a very simple sense is that a bond is kind of like a loan. A corporation asks for a loan and they give out a bond. Or you may have heard of the, the US Treasury asking for a loan and giving out a bond. When you buy a bond, it's because it's a loan, they are required to pay you back with a usually a fixed interest rate. So they are a lot less risky, but because they're less risky, the return isn't as high. So it may only be a 4% or a 5% interest rate. Um, however, it's very unlikely you'll lose money unless a corporation goes bankrupt. And obviously with like the US Treasury, we hope they're not gonna go bankrupt because if they go bankrupt, then we're all screwed. And then when it comes to a stock, it's taking part ownership in that company. And so stocks are riskier, they have a higher potential for return, but because they have that higher potential for return, if they go bankrupt, they don't owe you anything. Um, if they do poorly, they don't owe you anything. So it's kind of that risk return mentality. Bonds are always gonna be less risky, but almost always have uh, less return on your investment, less potential for return. Just wanted to add that in because I think it's important. I touch on bonds a little bit later in the episode, but wanted to add this now. So something like a Vanguard S&P 500 index fund is going to have your, you know, Apple stock, Google's stock, Walmart, IBM, the bigger names, it's all included in there. And rather than having to buy each stock individually and each of them have their own prices and, you know, it costs a ridiculous amount of money to buy all 500, uh, a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund takes them all together and splits it into a, a pie of sorts. So you can buy one stock of the mutual fund and own just a little chunk of 500 companies if we're talking about the index fund for the S&P 500. So you can kind of imagine it like taking 500 different flavored jelly beans and rather than, you know, having 500 whole jelly beans, you you take a little sliver of each one and they all combine and now it's just one jelly bean with 500 different flavors on it, but it's the same size as a jelly bean. So it's extremely well diversified. Now the difference between mutual funds and exchange traded funds is subtle but important. Like I said, they're both well diversified. But the difference is that exchange traded funds are passively managed and mutual funds are actively managed. Meaning with mutual funds, there's a broker who's buying and selling stocks within that portfolio. So if we imagine that jelly bean, they're picking off little flakes of stocks that have built up the jelly bean and they're adding more or they're adding more of a, another type of st uh, stock. They're buying and selling within that, that size of the jelly bean. The way ETFs work, exchange traded funds, is we talked about the S&P 500, which is the, the top 500 U.S. corporations. If, for example, uh, there's a, a company that is the 500 and first biggest corporation, they're just under the mark, and they surpass the 500th biggest company, then an exchange-traded fund 
because it is tied to what that looks like, it will sell the 500th biggest stock and buy the 501st biggest stock because it is tied up to that. Even though it's not actively managed by someone, someone's not making that decision. It's an algorithm. Now, why would you go for a mutual fund and why would you go for an exchange-traded fund? Mutual fund, because it's actively managed, there's a chance. There's a chance that the person behind who's buying and selling is going to do better than the market, to beat the market. You may have heard that term. It's unlikely. I'll say it quite simply. I'll link as many articles as I need to to express that it's very unlikely that a mutual fund that it's actively trading is going to do better than the market. So if we go back to that S&P 500, and I'm going to keep referring to it because I think it's the simplest thing to understand, 500 biggest U.S. companies. So if the average annual return of the S&P 500, let's say it's 8%. I'm getting that number from an article, which I'll link. 8%. That means that between year one and year two, if you put in $100, by year two, you would have $108. Now, a mutual fund may try to beat that. They might say, oh, I think this company is going to do, going to grow more and be better than, than this company. And so they'll assemble a, a, a fund with all these stocks, and it may do better. It may get 11% returns or 12%. So now instead of making eight bucks with your $100, you made $12 or $11. But, and this is a big but, with a mutual fund, because it's actively traded, A, the broker will get a commission when they buy and sell. So take that, that's a little bit of a fee. And there's a tax for selling stocks. So that is included in the fee. So basically, the benefit of... An exchange-traded fund, very, very low fees because they're not actively buying and selling. Low fees, low taxes is a good thing. And the benefit, the potential upside of a mutual fund is that even though there are higher fees, there's the potential to do better than the market, to beat the market. But in my opinion, which is not an expert opinion, but what I am doing is focusing on exchange-traded funds and index funds. And I didn't really explain an index fund, but it's very, very similar to an exchange-traded fund. The only difference is that it's considered a mutual fund. So I hope, I really hope I'm not losing you here. Imagine a Venn diagram. Mutual fund in one circle, exchange-traded fund in another circle, and kind of they meet in the middle with the index fund. Because the index fund is a mutual fund, that means that it can potentially be actively bought and sold. There's a broker behind it, but it's following the index. It's doing what the exchange traded fund is doing. It's copying whatever the S&P 500 is. Whatever those 500 companies are, that's what's going to be in the index fund. So even though it has the potential to be actively bought and sold, it's following the index. I know that was wordy. I hope you stayed with me. All you need to know from that is they're both they're both good. And I lean more towards exchange-traded funds and a specific fund, because I feel like it's only fair to name specific funds in this, 
Vanguard S&P 500 ETF. The initials are VOO. You can look that up. Don't have to buy it. Another one, Fidelity High Dividend ETF. Don't have to buy it, but you can look it up. Another one, Vanguard Growth ETF. These funds have the word, have the letters ETF at the back of them. So that's how you know. So you found your mutual fund or exchange traded fund that you would like to invest in. Now, earlier I used the hypothetical example of if you had a hundred bucks to spend and a mutual fund, one stock of it happened to cost a hundred dollars. Unfortunately, that's never the case. It's never that cut and dry because the stock price is always changing. However, Robinhood popularized the idea of fractional shares. So now if a S&P 500 ETF costs $361.17, you can still buy a fraction of that stock with your $100, which is to say there's no excuse not to start because I would argue if you invest in a, a mutual fund or an index fund or an ETF, then I would argue even if it's only 100 bucks, it is still a better investment than keeping it in your savings account. Now, I have to mention, the money in your savings account isn't as safe as you think. Short term, if you want to save up for something, maybe a down payment for a house or, you know, an expensive piece of technology. Yes, okay, it makes sense to put money in your savings account. But long term, inflation is rising faster than the interest you're making in your savings account. So it is not as safe as you think to keep your huge piles of money in your savings account. You are much better off investing in a not that risky investment like a index fund than you are keeping it in your savings account. Now, I just wanted to briefly put on one point about savings. Just as a kind of rule of thumb, it's a smart idea to set aside kind of a, a rainy day fund for three to six months of your salary. And I think the biggest reason for that and the reason to do that before you start investing is because let's say you did tie your money up in a, a retirement account. There's big fees to take it out. If you kind of got stuck and maybe you had a medical expense and had to pay for that and maybe take out a loan, it's the, the debt and the interest from that debt that's going to really screw you over and kind of undo all your progress when it comes to investing. So it's better to have that that saving set aside for a rainy day before you start investing. And I I will say in in full honesty that I don't have that set up and I I started investing before that. And that's something, you know, as I'm getting closer to graduating college, that's something on my mind is setting up the the rainy day fund. Because investing is fun to talk about. It's fun to talk about money compounding. But really, if if I'm unprepared for a, a big expense and then I have to go into debt for it, then I'm just screwing myself over, undoing any progress I could potentially make. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, something I thought of adding this in post post recording the episode. Compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it, earns it. He who doesn't, pays it. That's what Albert Einstein said. That is a beautiful transition to our next topic, 
of retirement accounts, IRAs and Roth IRAs, and 401ks, which we'll touch on. But like I said, this is meant for the self-starter, the freelancer, the one who's going to take control of their finances themselves and not wait for their company to present it to them. This is who I'm talking to. What's the point of investing? I didn't really touch on that. I told you how you could go about doing it, but what's the point of it, really? Well, the point is financial freedom. So that when you hit age 65 or whatever point you want to retire, you're not stuck scraping together money with a social security check that may not be guaranteed when I'm 45 years older. I'm not planning on it. I don't think anyone should. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It's an important system. But you should be prepared to cover yourself for retirement. So you need to start investing in a retirement account early. Because the earlier you invest, the longer compound interest can work its magic and the richer you can get, the wealthier you can get. Here's a little thought experiment for to show you the power of compound interest. Now, earlier I said the S&P 500 on average, at least since 1957, has had a roughly, has had roughly an average return of 8% year after year. So if you put in 108, if you put in $100 one year, year two, it'll have $108. Let's say you started at age 20 and every month you put in 200 bucks. Now, that may seem like a lot. It seems like a lot for me at age 20, only working part-time. But as you get older, 200 bucks is not going to seem like a lot. If you did that for 45 years until the age of 65, by the end of that, on an account only earning 8%, by the end of that, you would have $1,054,907.98. And that's only putting in, if we don't include the, the compound interest, you only put in $108,000. So just by investing in something that has a track record of earning 8% roughly annually, you earn 10 times the amount of money than if you left that you know, in, in a savings account. And that's assuming that you wouldn't lose money to inflation. Ten times. So I hope that expresses why you have to invest for your retirement, for financial freedom. Now, I want to add one more element to that little hypothetical. Let's say instead of earning 8% annually, you only earn 7%. And maybe that wasn't because of the stock market, but maybe it was because taxes in some shape or form took out 1% a year from what you could be investing in earning. If you remember that over a million dollar number, if your average annual return was 1% less, you would only earn $758,518.94, which is still a big number, but it's practically... 25% less. It's 250,000 short of what you could have been making. And that's why retirement accounts with their tax benefits are so vital to invest in. 
over a million dollars. You may think, you know, that's all I need to retire. Well, a lot of that would be taken out for taxes. I'm not an expert. I, I've learned a bit about the progressive tax system, and it's a beast, and it's kind of boring, and it's not worth talking about on this episode. But just know that the money would be taken out, a lot of it, you know, in terms of capital gains taxes, which is why you want to set up a retirement account. Here, here's the, the basis of it, in the simplest way possible. A 401k is something your employer offers you. It's a tax-deferred account. And this is the same as the I, an IRA account, an individual retirement account. Tax-deferred. What that means is, you know, let's say you make $50,000 a year and you're in a certain, a certain tax bracket. If you invested $5,000 in your IRA or your 401k, then for your income, you would only mark $45,000 tax deferred. You don't have to pay the taxes on that money that goes into that account yet. Now, I'll stay very briefly on 401ks and IRAs. A little bit boring, but so important. A 401k is employee sponsored. The benefit of a 401k is there if your employer has a company matching program. And what that means is they may say, if you put in up to $2,000, we, we will match up to $2,000. And my, my professor, Dr. Griswold, always said, you can't be at 100% return. You can't beat someone matching the exact same amount of money. So invest in your 401k up to the amount your company will match. But maybe they don't have a matching program. Okay, then there are other options because the downside of a 401k is that they have a limited amount of stock options for you to choose from. You know, I talked about those mutual funds and ETFs. They may have their own brands, their own family of funds. Maybe you like Vanguard. I love Vanguard. Um, maybe you want to invest in the Fidelity or Schwab S&P 500, but they don't have those. And they only have certain ones that maybe names you don't recognize. That's the downside of the 401k is you don't have as many options. But if they have the matching program, you know, you can always do your, your little bit of research or just say, oh, this fund is an index of, you know, the S&P 500 and it just doesn't say it. Um, you're going to be able to find something you like, but it's just limited. IRAs, on the other hand, individual retirement accounts are also tax-deferred, but they don't have the company matching program, obviously, because it's not with a company, but you have all these options. You know, right now, I have a IRA, a Roth IRA, set up with Schwab, um, which is a, a family, a brokerage, and it's basically like being on Robinhood and being able to choose all these different stocks, and the only difference is that it's within in my case, the Roth IRA, which means that when you set up a retirement account, you cannot take the money out until I'm going to have to double check myself, but it's either 59 and a half years old or 54 and a half years old. So one of those two, and you can't take the money out until then without getting a kind of tax extra. I want to say it's 10% extra, and then you have to pay the normal amount of taxes. 
Now, 401ks and IRAs are similar because they're tax deferred. But then there's this other one, this weird one, the Roth IRA. That is, that's where I have my money right now, the majority of it. And it's not a lot of money. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to hide the fact that, you know, I'm not getting rich off the stock market. But most of my money is tied up in a Roth IRA. And here's the, the thing that you're like, you may have to like pinch yourself because it doesn't sound real. With a Roth IRA, once you've paid your income tax, you know, for your normal year, if you made $50,000 a year, maybe you pay $6,500 in taxes, but that money left over, whatever you invest in the Roth IRA, you don't have to pay taxes for again. Now, obviously, it's like the, the other retirement accounts. You have to wait until you're at that, that age for retirement to take the money out. But that money will grow tax-free. And now, I don't know about you, but if we go back to that example about compound interest, if I had to pay tax, if I had to pay, you know, $5,000 worth of taxes or 20% of my taxes when I'm 20 or when I'm 25, but I don't have to pay taxes once I've racked up over a million dollars in retirement, yeah, I will take that any day out of the week. And so Roth IRAs are where to put your money. <laughs> Here's kind of the order that I've heard from Dave Ramsey and my professor, Dr. Griswold. Do, do the company match with, you know, if you have a 401k option with a company matching, invest up to the match because it's 100% return. You cannot beat that. Then put your money in a Roth IRA. Now, the thing about Roth IRAs is that at least as of right now, you can only put up to $6,000 a year in there, which is like, okay, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to have up to $6,000 this year to put in there, but there is a limit. So you can't just put all your money in the Roth IRA because otherwise I don't know why you wouldn't. <laughs> so there is that limit. And the other thing about Roth IRAs is once you're making over $125,000, this is for 2021, and as you get to the point of $140,000, if you're a single person, then you can't contribute to the Roth IRA anymore. So if you get that nice paycheck at like age 28, age 30, you can't contribute to the Roth anymore. But that money's still going to grow. It's not like you lose that money that you've been putting in there. You just can't contribute anymore. But that money can still grow and compound. And then by the time you're ready to retire... You're going to be rich. You're going to be wealthy as hell. So that's why, that's another reason I'm so adamant about invest now, invest when you're young, is because eventually, I mean, I hope all you listeners are going to be wealthy and successful. Eventually, you won't be able to contribute to that Roth anymore. So do it while you can. <laughs> and so that's kind of my quick summary about retirement funds. Yes. Yeah, so you can't set up a retirement fund on Robinhood. I use Schwab to set up mine and there's not really a, a minimum amount you need to invest. And I know Vanguard has them and I think Fidelity and I'm assuming most families of funds and I'll kind of check the show notes because I'll have probably a step-by-step -step of like, if you want to set up a retirement account, if you want to set up just a regular investment account, kind of those step-by-steps. So double, double check that in the show notes because 
yes, I want you to set up that Roth IRA. And, you know, maybe you're listening to this and you have a 401k. That's fine. But if you're able to, I would say maybe if you haven't set up a Roth IRA and you still can, try it. Because um, you can have the 401k and the Roth IRA as long as you're not making over that limit. And again, with those retirement accounts, if you put your money in there, you're not actually invested. You just have money in an account. You have to buy certain stocks. You have to buy the specific mutual funds and ETFs and index funds like we talked about before, which is why I kind of have to explain all these elements to kind of get the point across because they're all separate. They all have confusing acronyms, but they're all important. They're all pieces to the puzzle of wealth creation. <sighs> now that we've got that out of the way. Well, actually, I want to I want to tell you one more thing. There's this thing called the rule of 72. And if you can say, like I said before, on average, the S&P 500 index has shown returns of 8% a year. The rule of 72 is you take the number 72 and divide it by that percentage. So in this case, it would be 9. So 72 divided by 8, 9. Nine years is on average how long it's going to take for your money to double. So if I put in $1,000 into that S&P index fund and just do this weird calculation, 72 is just some magic number, then I can expect in nine years to see my money double. And nine years from then, I'll see my money double again. So in 18 years, I'll have $4,000. Wait another nine years, uh, 27 years, and I'll have $8,000. So that's just kind of a rule of thumb because sometimes you may want to – and I didn't even touch on this. But sometimes you may want to invest in bonds which don't have as high returns but they're not as risky. Maybe there's 5%. Um, and you can kind of just see you know, what are the average return of, of the, the mutual fund that I'm looking at and kind of do that quick calculation in your head just to kind of give you an idea. I, I wouldn't take it as the ultimate word because stocks change, because returns change. So it's just something to keep in mind. It's a cool little rule my professor, Dr. Griswold, taught me. Okay. All that boring, boring, boring stuff that's going to make you rich, I got that out of the way. So in the second half of this episode, I want to talk about kind of the fun stuff, crypto, NFTs, um, the psychology of money, um, and, and also kind of the point of saving what financial freedom really means. Because yes, I can give you the step-by-step -step instructions, express how to invest, express that investing is safe. It's the, the only way forward when an inflation is higher than your what you're earning on your savings account. So yes, invest. That's the way forward. That's the way to wealth. That's the way to financial freedom. That's the way to not be dependent on a $20,000 a year social security check that may not be guaranteed when I'm an adult, when I'm retired. That's the way forward to think about retirement. But the fun stuff, the fun stuff is cryptocurrency. It's Bitcoin. It's Ethereum. It's NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And here's my opinion. Well, to back up a little bit, let me explain from what I understand just kind of the basic crypto for dummies. 
Okay, to first touch on cryptocurrencies, there are two ways to look at it. A, what's the use? Because that's really important. And B, are they worth investing in? When it comes to Bitcoin, let's explain the use of it. It's a, a decentralized currency. And Bitcoin was the first, the first decentralized digital currency. Basically, the reason it's decentralized is because the creator also invented the blockchain. And all you need to know about the blockchain is that it's like a ledger. Um, the way an accountant would kind of write down all the transactions of a business. It's a ledger on the internet. And that allows every Bitcoin to be verified as legitimate and irreplaceable. So you can't fake having a Bitcoin. You cannot, you cannot fake having a Bitcoin in the way that someone could create fake money. The other aspect of it being decentralized is that you don't need a middleman. You don't need an authority figure, uh, an authority figure like the government to kind of verify the purchases. The purchases are verified because everyone can see the transaction. And, and I think a good example to illustrate what it looks like without Bitcoin is this, a real estate transaction. Let's say you decide to sell your house. Most likely a stranger is going to buy it. And the stranger is going to re rely on the local government to have a centralized ledger or database for the deeds and titles to ensure that you are the owner of the land so that you're not just walking up to someone else's house when they're on vacation and selling it. And that gives the buyer and the lender, so if he's getting a loan from the bank, it gives them confidence. And so the centralized database is essential to facilitating the transaction. And the blockchain eliminates the need for a centralized database. It basically gets rid of the government as the middleman. We used the, the real estate example again, but this time with the blockchain, if you sell your house to Joe and all parties agree that the sale happened and it was fair, then the ledger gets updated. Now, if Joe is ready to sell his house, then the next buyer can check the ledger that everyone has access to, the blockchain, and confirm that um, Joe has the title because it's listed on the blockchain. And that becomes more useful when we look at NFTs. And basically, Ginny Rometty has a, a good quote. She was the former CEO of IBM. She says, blockchain will do for trusted transaction what the internet did for information. Essentially, the government can't step in. And I think the other important piece about decentralization and cryptocurrency is something like the US dollar, which has been so strong for so long there's kind of some baggage being built up. We know that the U.S. debt is getting to truly insane numbers. And there's just kind of this, this underlying thought that, you know, the Federal Reserve is kind of pulling strings to make sure the, the economy doesn't fall apart and they're doing their job well. However, it's kind of like putting Band-Aids on something that needs stitches or that needs surgery. And so I think the argu another argument for decentralization is, you know, there isn't that baggage. There is no 
central authority figure that is trillions of trillions of dollars in debt. And so you as the person using that that currency don't have to worry about the central uh, you don't have to worry about the central authority figure falling or defaulting on loans or whatever it may look like. You kind of have that that confidence because it's decentralized, the risk is offset. You don't have to worry about one power falling and then that messes up the whole the whole currency. So that's just another thing to think about. Um, another thing I thought of post episode. And so basically all the cryptocurrencies that are being created are using the blockchain in that that same manner with some differences. I think it's difficult, but I think this is what's going to happen is not looking at it from the perspective of geography, but now looking at it from the the perspective of content and and theme. So Ethereum, you can buy NFTs, but Bitcoin, maybe you can only buy, you know, real estate transactions. So it's just being used for different things. And I'm going to link um, as much information as I can about Bitcoin, especially the Matilda Talks money video. But now that we have a basic, basic understanding of the blockchain, the point of it, just like a, a ledger to keep records of transactions, let's talk about investing in it. Essentially, it is like investing in gold or silver or the US dollar or the the yen or any other currency that a country uses. I hope it makes sense. The point of cryptocurrency in the blockchain is basically to disallow the government from stepping in and you know messing with money. Because money is really just a medium of exchange. It doesn't have to look like a, a paper thing that you can hold in your hand. It could be anything. It could be digital. Um, and this is just the blockchain is essentially protecting digital currency from fraud. That's the basis. And now to talk about the $57,685 elephant in the room, which is what I'm looking at, the price of one Bitcoin. So we understand the purpose of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, but it's not usable because of how volatile it is. Imagine if the US dollar fluctuated 568% in one year. I don't think anyone would be using that dollar as currency or accepting it. It's too volatile at the moment to be used, but people are making money. So what does that mean for you? Again, assuming I'm talking to the person who's not a Bitcoin expert or cryptocurrency expert, but just wants to know how they can invest in themselves for the future to have financial freedom in the future. My advice for you is don't invest in Bitcoin. It's the same principle as what I said earlier with, you know, Apple stock and Tesla stock. Don't invest in an individual stock. Don't invest in an individual cryptocurrency because it's just another asset. And right now it is way too volatile and there's a chance it may repeat the pattern of the dot-com bubble, which in 2000 popped, or 1999 popped. And basically, everyone had been investing in uh, dot-com startups, websites, 
that were, oh, making a ton of money online and e-commerce places and only a few survived because everyone was throwing money into it. But the way bubbles work is someone's going to get screwed at the end. The bubble's going to pop on someone. Someone's going to lose a lot of money. It seems like Bitcoin and Ethereum will kind of make it through the, the rubble, will make it out alive. And hopefully they will emerge more stable and you, you will be able to use them for normal things. We will be able to buy our groceries with Bitcoin. And, and I don't know how far away that future is, but I'm not going to deny that that could be a reality. But don't be afraid because I don't know what the future is going to look like. But what if you know you have invested all this money in a retirement account and now everyone starts using Bitcoin? 20 years later and, you know, your money is tied up in that retirement account and you get panicked. Bitcoin is an asset class. And that means if your U.S. dollar is tied up in a retirement account, you don't have U.S. dollars. You have portions of companies that are earning money that can be in the form of Bitcoin or the U.S. dollar. But they are earning wealth, which means that if you were invested and not just keeping your money in a bank account, you're not going to get screwed over because the odds are, and, you know, I, I could be very, very wrong and totally misinterpreting this, but it's possible that, you know, if you were invested in a retirement account, by the time you pull it out at age 65, because I'm 20 as I record this, by the time I pull it out, I'll be pulling it out in exchange for Bitcoin instead of U.S. dollars. That is an absolute real possibility. And that wouldn't mean that I'm screwed over. It would just mean the, the world of finances changed, but investing didn't. So I say all this to kind of relieve your stress. You don't need to buy Bitcoin when it's $60,000, but oh, it's going to go up to $100,000 in a month. Chill out. Chill out. I think Bitcoin is an immensely useful invention. It very well, the blockchain may very well be the next internet. Like that's how important it is. But in terms of investing, you don't need to get caught up in the hype of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Because there's a difference between investing in a currency and using it. The volatility of all these cryptocurrencies is why it's not worth investing in. Not because it's not a useful technology. Not because it could very well be the thing we're using 10 years from now to buy groceries. It's just too volatile. Now the caveat. This could be very likely coming up by the end of 2021 is we talked about mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. Imagine that, but instead of the S&P 500, like we've been talking about, an exchange-traded fund for cryptocurrencies. And the reason, you know, I would be all over that is because when it's an exchange-traded fund, it's diversified. If one company goes bust, if one cryptocurrency goes bust, 
then the rest will offset that. So the last thing I'll say about that is kind of be on the lookout for it. Hopefully you're invested in a, a Roth IRA or whatever it may be. I'm under the impression that even these you know, retirement accounts, even if you have a Schwab account um, they and Vanguard, they will eventually have cryptocurrency exchange traded funds and, and Robinhood too. So just kind of be on the lookout for that. I'm sure it'll be hard to miss. But the moral of my rant, the moral of the rant is don't get caught up in the hype because the bubble's going to pop on someone and you don't want it to be you. If all your friends are saying, Bitcoin's about to explode, Ethereum, man, buy an NFT. Chill out, be level-headed, invest in mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, and stay on the path. <laughs> oh, like the book I, I've been talking about this whole time. Stay on the path. You can adapt as the world changes, because it will, but the principle is invest in diversified uh, funds with a track record. And right now, crypto doesn't have a track record even though we very well may be all on the blockchain, all like all our transactions may be on the blockchain in five years, 10 years. It's the end of the rant. Well, what about NFTs? You can tell I'm having more fun now that I'm ranting about the crypto. But what about NFTs? A non-fungible token, and I feel like I've seen so much of this because you know, my Instagram feed is full of digital artists who are doing really cool stuff. But an NFT is essentially like the blockchain. We're staying on the blockchain for just a second. It's like what we just talked about, except instead of, you know, Bitcoin, which, you know, there I don't know how many Bitcoin are in circulation, but it's more than one. A non-fungible token is one individual item on the blockchain, one Mona Lisa, one art print. That cannot be replicated. It's kind of weird to talk about, you know, currency and art on the same blockchain. But I think I think it's better to kind of instead of thinking blockchain of like a linear line, thinking of it like this this world where so many things can be on in the blockchain. I don't know how you're gonna visualize it. I'm trying to think of how I'm visualizing it. But it's like, yeah, cryptocurrency can exist. Currency can exist. NFTs can exist. You know, if we get these crazy virtual reality worlds, then perhaps that will also exist on the, the blockchain. Video games may exist on the blockchain. So just kind of widen your, your mind. Don't get too caught up on, oh, how are NFTs and crypto together? So a non-fungible token is like a cryptocurrency because it's on the blockchain, but it's one. It's one art print. It's like if you go to the Louvre, you will see the original Mona Lisa. Not a replica, not something that someone copied. It will be the original. What a non-fungible token allows, because it's on the blockchain, it allows us to see with this kind of ledger that it is the original. And you may think, well, if it's a digital asset, if it's a digital art print, couldn't I just take a picture or take a screenshot? Yeah. 
You absolutely could. And the argument for non-fungible tokens is that because I have the original, it's rare. Even though other people have it, even though other people consume it for free, I have the original, and the mindset is that of an art collector. So the original will be worth more because it's rare, because there's only one. And that that's about all I can say for it. Um, I mean, unless you want to collect digital art and kind of be an art collector, you don't need to buy an NFT. And I think even more so, do you need to make an, an NFT? Because I, I hope I'm talking to artists. Um, you know, collage artists I've seen in these like virtual effects artists I've been seeing making these kind of mini videos that, and they have these really cool, they have this really cool art that they're turning into NFTs. And that may be the way forward for artists. I don't think I'm qualified. I don't think I know enough about it to make a, a bold prediction, but, but I think to wrap up my thought, if you're a, a very small artist, I don't think you need a rush to make an NFT. You know, the artists that I've been seeing, they have millions of followers on Instagram. They've been making art for 10 years and now they have this opportunity. Um, you know, then yeah, maybe it's time for them and they want more than just to sell, you know, their collage prints and turn them into t-shirts for 10 bucks online. Maybe they want to make something that's priceless because people can buy it with, um, you know, cryptocurrency. Maybe that's what they want. But if you're not there, if you're small, don't like rush to make an NFT. That's like rushing to get into a, a fine art museum before you've really kind of honed your craft. Don't get caught up in the hype. Crypto investing and NFT purchasing are the hype right now. They're speculation. They're experimental. So be patient. The world isn't going to pass you by because you didn't buy a Bitcoin or because you didn't buy an NFT and now it went increased 10 times its value. Stay on the path. Patience. Wait for stability and diversification. And then maybe, maybe you want to buy an NFT just to have one. The way a you know, a, a wealthy person buys a piece of art to hang in their home. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll all be in virtual worlds and NFTs will make sense. But as of right now, it's, you're just buying the original copy of a digital print that everyone can see and essentially have on their, their own computer, their own phone for free. So I would just say, don't worry about it. Keep, a, keep one eye on it if you want, but don't feel so much pressure around them. Um, and I'll also be linking some information about non-fungible tokens. Now that we get to the second half of the second half of this, probably I'm going to have to break it into two parts because it's gone so long. But I want to talk about the other fun part. Psychology. The psychology of wealth. And this is where I'm really going to touch on that book of the same title. So I touched on that 8% return 
with an S&P 500 index fund. But it doesn't come for free. And when I say free, I mean psychologically free. Because any risk or any, any good return will have risk associated with it. And I think it's important to express that, yes, investing is more volatile than putting money in a savings account. And we've already touched on why it's not as safe as you think to keep your money in savings long term. But it, there is a price to pay psychologically when it comes to investing. Because there's always going to be hype, mass hysteria, whatever the decade is, whatever's going on. And I kind of want to walk you through as the S&P 500 has grown, we've gone through the Wall Street crash, the Great Depression, World War II, the Korean War, Cuban Missile Crisis, JFK was assassinated, Vietnam War, U.S. recession in around the 80s, um, Gulf War, Oklahoma City bombing, the dot-com bubble burst, September 11th, the Iraq War, and that eventually in 2008, we had a terrible, a terrible financial panic. And if you would have stayed in the stock market that whole time, your return, and this is, this is better than what we talked about before, better than the 8%, you would have seen a 15,039% return. A lot goes on. And this book um, was written after the, 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 the global pandemic. However, they just don't have the research for it yet, which was, in a sense, another smaller recession. And I have no doubt that there will be another recession in the future. But, you know, we keep pushing forward. And so the psychological risk is more about worry than it is about than it is about risk in terms of losing it all because there may be times where it feels like it but i think the, the best thing you can remember is stay in it for the long haul you're in it for the long haul and a, a little piece about investing that that i've kind of learned and and i think is important is as you get closer to that retirement age, what you can begin to do is rebalance your portfolio, which is saying if I had, you know, eighty percent in in stocks like mutual funds that are based on the S and P five hundred, because there is risk. You know, what if I retire at sixty five and there's another pandemic or another financial crisis, and I just kind of have to wait. Or sell my or sell my stocks and kind of get dimes on the dollar um, for something that I've saved so long for. So what you can begin to do is rebalance your portfolio as you get closer to retirement with more bonds, and that's a, kind of a whole nother conversation. But bonds are just more stable because they are basically your loaning. If it's a U.S. Treasury bond, you're loaning the government money that they have to pay back with interest. Um, or if it's a corporate bond, you're loaning the company money that they have to pay back with interest. The upside is that they're more secure because it's a loan. It's not 
a, a stock, they are supposed to pay you back unless they file for bankruptcy. And the U.S. Treasury is not going to file for bankruptcy, but they also have a lower rate of return. So they're more stable and there's less return. So as you get closer to retirement, you may want more certainty and you are willing to give up some of that greater return because you'll have a, a, a stronger sense of stability. And so that's just something to think about and, you know, by the time I get to that age, what, by the time I'm in my 40s, 30s even, I hope to have a financial advisor to kind of give me more guidance as I have more money invested. And like I said, this this is designed for young people, people who haven't started investing but kind of just want to get their toes in the water. So that's something to think about longer term. And I would hope that you have a financial advisor kind of in your corner when you get to that point about thinking about rebalancing your portfolio. But it's something I wanted to mention. Back to the psychology of money. Here's an interesting idea. What's the difference between wealth and being rich? Wealth is what you don't see. Again, in the book, The Psychology of Money, the author illustrates an, an amazing point. And basically, he offers this story, this paradox, if you will. It's called the man in the car paradox. You know, when you're 20-something and ambitious and wanting success and wanting to be wealthy, you may see someone driving a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or Rolls Royce, and you just have the dream of wanting it so bad. And why, why do you want it? Obviously, you know, if you're a car lover, maybe it's just because you love the way it's built. But I'm willing to bet more people lean in the camp of it makes me look cooler. It, it makes me feel uh, richer. It shows that I have taste. It gives me status. I think even subconsciously, that may be what more, more people lean towards. But let's say you were that 20-something-year-old who dreamed of that car, and then eventually you got it. Well, when you drive down the street, everyone will be looking at your car. Except not because they think you're cool or have a higher status or you're rich. It's that they're dreaming about being in that car too. Dreaming about their potential status. And so the paradox is people tend to want wealth to signal to others that you know they should be liked and admired. But in reality, those people often bypass admiring you because they're thinking about their wealth, their potential wealth. And so it's essentially a never-ending cycle of, you know, I want to look wealthy, so I buy this. And so people will think I'm wealthy. And then the person, the other people see you and they think, I want that because I want to look wealthy. And no one's actually thinking about that other person being high status. They're thinking about themselves. And so wealth is what you don't see. And again, in this book by Morgan Hossel, he says, past a certain level of income, what you need is just what sits below your ego. You know, because, and I'll link this study before, but I think there's a cutoff around 70000 or $80,000 a year, where after that point, more money isn't going to make you happy. And so, you know, once you cover the basic expenses and maybe some entertainment expenses, 
past that certain point, money isn't going to do much. And so Hassel says one of the most important ways to increase your savings isn't to raise your income. It's to raise your humility. To be okay not buying the Lamborghini. To be okay not buying the $1,000 shoes or the expensive jewelry or the $300 coat, the Gucci belt, whatever it is. To be humble. You know, and I think this is something that I was thinking about on my own, unrelated to the book. I think we all have, you know, one or two areas where we're willing to spend extra money. You know, some people are really passionate about cars. And so their goal is to save for, you know, a Lam- Lamborghini or a Tesla. Tesla is a little more realistic because they love the car and it has nothing to do with their status. Some people love to collect shoes and it has nothing to do with people being impressed by their shoes. I think everyone has like an area or two where they're like, this is where I'm going to put all my money. This is where I put my excess income because this is what I love. I think for myself, it's, you know, health and health products. I I love, as silly as it sounds, I love to, you know, invest in high quality coffee and, you know, supplements that are a little pricey, but I'm willing to pay the price because I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy fancy shoes and I'll buy the two for one white shirt deal at H&M. I don't think they have that, but I'm willing to not spend as much on other things. And so a health related stuff becomes the thing that I'm willing to spend my excess money. And so I think that's just something to think about is yes, we all kind of want to be wealthy. We want to have that financial stability, but for the people who, you know, dream of being millionaires and billionaires and just infinitely wealthy, I think they have to ask themselves, you know, what am I trying to achieve because of my ego? And what am I trying to achieve because I'm passionate about it? Because it's something I truly love. Because that distinction is vital. Because if you keep striving to satisfy your ego, then no amount of money will make you content. But if you can find that distinction and say, okay, maybe it's just the car because I love the technology then once you have that, you'll be content and not trying to get the next toy or impress the next group of people or be in the next social club. Just food for thought. So I think there's two two other topics I don't want to talk about before we end this rather long episode that may have been broken up into two. And the first is that when it comes to investing and saving, and obviously I didn't go too deep into saving, and I can give you all the rules of thumbs and, you know, do 10% here and 10% there. But I think the key is to avoid the extremes of financial planning. And that means not doing it at all and putting every amount of excess money into investments. So avoiding those two extremes and being open to change. Because right now, as I record this, 
you know, I'm 20 years old and, you know, I dream of being independent, independent in my career, um, starting a business, freelancing, never working a desk job, but that could very well change. And I'm open to that. I'm open to my mindset changing. And, you know, I don't think I, I, as of right now, I don't think I'll ever have a 401k. But a year from now, I may be working a job that I'm entirely passionate about that has health benefits and a 401k. I may be living where I never thought I'd be living. I may not be making videos anymore. You know, I could be doing something entirely different from what I, from the direction I think I'm going right now. But I don't want my finances to change. You know, I, I illustrated that, that example of 45 years if I let my money compound, it'll be over a million dollars. And that's incredible. But 45 years, a lot can change. The world will be entirely different. I have no doubt about that. I will be entirely different. I have no doubt about that. And so you have to be willing to accept change into your financial plan. Because I don't want to be, you have to avoid the extremes. I don't want to be the person who doesn't think about investing until they're 30 and then lose out on a decade of compounding. So that's where the real money's made. And I also don't want to be the person who puts every penny in into investing instead of considering having a little fun on the weekends. I don't want to lose my, my 20s to spending my nights and weekends in an office just so I can make enough money to be happy eventually. I've got to find the middle ground. You've got to find the middle ground because things will change. <laughs> Instability is certain. That much I know. So start now. You know, if you need someone to push you, do it as a favor to me. Set up an IRA, a Roth IRA. Open a, a Robinhood account. Put 20 bucks in there. It would thrill me. It really would. But you've got to accept that even if you're going to be an entirely different person 45 years from now, you at least want your your 65-year-old self to look back and say thank you to the person listening right now, to the person who signed up for their account, set it up. That's all That's all this episode is about. Do your future self a favor. Invest, save. Think about the future, even if it's uncertain. Accept the unexpected and hopefully create some wealth in the process. Thank you for listening. This has been fun for me to record as weird as that sounds. I, I hope you listened this far. I feel like I lost myself on a rant, but this episode will have succeeded if one person sets up a Roth IRA or an IRA or whatever it is. If one more person makes an intelligent investment because of this episode, then I will feel like a success. Thank you.